Right. We're about halfway through the book of Acts, which is just one of the places that we're going to look at to consider how the early church was preaching and teaching, evangelizing and carrying on missions and outreach type work, and the necessity for those things and the methodology for how it was done. I do want to take a quick side trip and answer one of the most common arguments that I've heard made by individuals, especially those among our churches who are apparently anti-evangelistic and anti-outreach oriented, and I've heard this claim for many years, but one of the brethren I love dearly refreshed my memory regarding some holding this type of position, and that is the idea that unlike the early church, which is what we've been going through in the book of Acts, the present day church is very divided in terms of the different views that it has on different doctrines and other things. And given that the church is divided, and those who've made this kind of argument actually narrow it down tighter from general Christendom down to our body of churches and say, since our body of churches is so divided, we shouldn't be going out with the message until we have become unified on that message. Because if we go out with the message, and it's exactly the way he had heard this, and it's exactly the way I've heard it given by some through the years as well, What will we be bringing them into? If we're a divided body, we'll be bringing them into a divided body. I could probably come up with a list of different answers for that claim, or maybe you might call it a question. What would we be bringing them into if we brought them into a divided body? And until we're not a divided body, in other words, until the church has been truly restored and we are unified on our order and unified on our doctrine, then we shouldn't be reaching out to the world outside of our walls. But as I started saying, that type of question has very serious problems with it. And it's an example of one of these approaches to establishing a belief that is guaranteed to blind you to the truth. And that is when, instead of looking through the scriptures to see how God expects things to be done, you're determined they need to be done a certain way. Or instead of searching through the scriptures to see what the truth is about something, you're determined that you already know the truth. Then what you do is you go looking through the scriptures for anything that might seem to back up what you're saying, or you try to use some form of logical argument, which is really all that question is because the Bible never says anywhere, don't bring people into the church if the church is in a divided state. But that does sound pretty logical. Why would you want to bring somebody into a place where they are not completely settled on all of their order and doctrine? My first answer to that, I'm going to start with asking a question in return. Was the early church, after the day of Pentecost, after it was inaugurated on the day of Pentecost, settled on every possible issue of order and doctrine that could potentially come up? If they weren't settled on every issue of order and doctrine, and I'll answer that in a moment, but if they weren't settled on every issue of order and doctrine, then according to that argument, why would we want to bring them into a divided body? Then what in the world were they doing on the day of Pentecost and in all the other examples we've read up through at this point, the 14th chapter of Acts? I know someone is bound to say to me, well, they weren't divided on anything. Oh, they definitely were divided on some things until after this very chapter that we got to in the book of Acts. Some of those things that they found out they were divided on, they hadn't even realized were an issue until they started reaching out to those outside the church. So think about that for a moment. There were things, and if you haven't figured them out already, especially considering we're about to go in the 15th chapter of Acts, just consider. There were things that the early church had some heated division on, heated disputing going back and forth about how to handle them that weren't handled until the 15th chapter of Acts, and it looks like it continued to be an issue even after that for a little while. 
But as I started saying, there were things that the early church ended up being divided on where the division wasn't even created until after they had gone out to the world around them with the message of the gospel. So arguing that we shouldn't go out to the world around us if we're in a divided state, the early church went out to the world around them and then found out that they were divided on some things. And then they had to resolve those things. But you notice they went out to the world around them first before they even knew they were divided on some things. If you haven't, as I said, already figured out what I'm talking about, it's the issue of the Gentiles. There was very serious division in the early church on the issue of the Gentiles, and that came to a head in the chapter we're going to go into next, the 15th chapter of Acts, where they had to come to unity at the council that they held at Jerusalem, and then send out statements about what their position was on the issue of the Gentiles because there was so much division on that issue. Were they already going out to the pagans and Gentiles before they dealt with this division? Yes, they most definitely were. This is the 15th chapter of Acts when they dealt with the division. They had been going out to the Gentiles since the 10th chapter of Acts. And Paul had been going into synagogues and into public places and preaching to all kinds of diverse and in some cases very resistant audiences with the message of the gospel. And by the way, he must have been doing it as you see through the chapters that preceded this that we've been reading. He was doing this while there was apparently division in the church about how to deal with the Gentiles. You couldn't get a worse time to be bringing more Gentiles in if that's your argument. If your argument is that we shouldn't bring people in because we're divided on things, and until we get unified, it's not time for the message to go out, then you are in complete opposition to Paul because Paul was not only doing that very thing, he was going to the people that the church was so divided about. He was preaching to the Gentiles when the church was very divided, apparently at the very time he was doing it, on how to handle the Gentiles. That all by itself completely wipes out the argument that we have to wait until we're completely unified, the church is completely restored, before we go out with the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel. Unfortunately, the gospel has been so tainted over the centuries between the time of the early church and our day, added to and subtracted from, that really what we need is the pure and full gospel. And what I'm talking about going out to preaching to people is the pure and full gospel. So that leads to another question, and that is, do we have that gospel? Are we, in our body of churches, divided on the doctrines that constitute the full gospel? If I were to define the full gospel, which I've been doing a little bit in some of our services lately, I think you'd see that we are not divided on that. The gospel is not the message about every single thing in the Bible that we might be still debating about what the timing of certain prophecies are or certain esoteric and sometimes even ancillary elements of order and operation that aren't even in the Bible that we sometimes debate over. The gospel is about the knowledge of sin, the knowledge that we are individuals that are in a state of sin that require salvation. We certainly agree on that, don't we? We're not divided on that, are we? It's about the knowledge of who God and Christ are. Not just some vague idea of their relationship. The full gospel includes, in my humble opinion, the proper understanding of the doctrine of the Godhead. Also something we are not divided on. Then our body almost universally agrees there is a progressive nature to salvation. We do have differences on how salvation might be progressive and how much God is involved in that versus how much we're involved in it. But we don't disagree on the progressive nature of salvation that you're not completely saved and perfected at the moment of conversion. We believe there's a process, and we believe that you have to go on to perfection. Yes, we have differences in terms of understanding how that works, when that works, 
and even defining what complete and entire perfection is. But we all agree that complete perfection has to come at some point. And then we all agree on the nature of eternal judgment. We all understand there is a resurrection of the dead. And we also understand the nature of eternal destruction in contrast to what much of the church world holds regarding eternal conscious torment. Now, I could expand on that. I've been doing that some, as I said here lately in some of our services, but those are the pieces and parts of what constitute the full gospel. And as a body of people, we completely agree on those things. So we're not divided on what constitutes the full gospel. We may be divided among our churches on how some of it works. We may be divided on some of the secondary elements of it. But what we would need to preach to bring somebody to full salvation, we know. We have the message that we need to preach to bring somebody from the guttermost to the uttermost. And if we have the message that can take somebody out of the depths of sin and the deep miry clay and put them on a solid rock and take them along the path of life to perfection, we don't need to wait to be unified on that message in order to preach it to the world because we already are unified on that message. We just have divided ideas on ancillary and secondary issues. That's another rebuttal that makes that whole claim fall apart. I'll ask you another question that's a little bit more facetious. And that is, if we don't want to add people to a divided church, then why are we letting anybody walk in the doors? We should just lock our doors and never let any visitors come in because God forbid we let anybody come in our churches if our body is divided on some things because what would they be getting added to? Are we refusing visitors? Are we refusing people to come in the doors? And you cannot make the argument, which is an unbiblical and insensible argument, I'm sorry to say, that God will just bring the people in the doors that he wants to come in the doors. So what you're basically saying is God has no problem adding people to a divided body, but he doesn't want us to add anyone to it. Think how ridiculous those kind of arguments are when you use just a little bit of logic and allow the Bible to be your basis. And let me ask one more question before we move on to this 15th chapter of Acts. Is it better to bring people into a divided body where we have a great deal of the truth of the Word of God, where some of the very same people who claim we shouldn't be going out to try to bring people into a divided body also believe we have a great measure of the truth? Or should we just allow what the very same people consider to be Babylon to bring them into their churches? So if we know that the gospel message we're preaching is truth in terms of our understanding of God, in terms of our understanding of the nature of sin, in terms of our understanding of the progressive nature of salvation, in terms of our understanding that we have to go on to perfection, in terms of our understanding of eternal judgment, since we agree on all that, and nobody would argue that if I were to preach on that in a public venue, I'm not preaching the truth, then what would be better, to add them to a church that has that truth that may be divided on some secondary things, or to allow churches that maybe part of what we call Babylon, to be the ones to evangelize them. Which body is worse to add them to? The body of Christ in a state of division on some issues, or the body of Babylon with horrifically corrupt and incorrect ideas about the very foundational things I said that in spite of our division, we are unified on. And I could give other arguments as well. But once you start thinking through some of these simple things, you'll realize pretty quickly that that argument is nothing but an attempt to try to do one of several things, either to avoid the responsibility of going out because you don't feel like you have the ability to do it or you don't have the desire to do it. And there's layers to that. Or it's a desire to keep control of the message behind walls of division, holding that message away from the people that need it most, as I've continued to say in these classes, in a manner that is far more cult-like in the worst sense of that word than it is God-like.
All right, those responses were just off the top of my head. But before we move on with going through the book of Acts, let me reiterate the core issue and possibly a couple of my answers a little bit more clearly. The argument sometimes made is that it isn't time for us to be evangelizing right now. It's not time for us to be having outreach. It's not time for us to be preaching the truth outside the walls of the church because doing so would just be adding people, if they were to come in in response to it, to a divided body. Or if we go out to preach to the world, what will we be bringing them into since we're still a divided body? And some might even say the examples that I might give in the book of Acts that describe the church going out in the world openly preaching the gospel are examples of a unified church doing that. And we aren't that kind of a body yet, so we can't apply those examples to us. I said that already, and I gave you a few answers to those points, but before we move on, I want to just touch on just a couple of the most salient points that are an answer to that. If what we presently have is so divided that no one should be added to it, what are you doing here? Why do you pray that your family, who may have left church, will return to church if the church, in its present state, is not a place that you believe people who are lost in sin should be added to? See how simple these issues are when you just take it right down to its simplest components? Let me ask again another question, maybe with a little more detail than I did a few minutes ago. If we have to wait until we're completely in unity on all issues in our body of churches before we go out preaching and teaching to those outside the church in order to bring them into the church, then why did the early church do that very thing when they were undeniably divided or unsettled at least on certain issues and had conflict going on at times between different leaders of the churches? Did the fact that Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander, who were preaching false doctrines about the resurrection and other issues among the churches, cause Paul and others to stop bringing people into the churches because there were people in those churches who were divided, including those who had great influence over other people, causing division? Of course not. Did the fact that there were major divisions regarding leadership and order in the Corinthian church, which you'll see in the first few chapters, mean that they should have corrected those things first before they witnessed to those outside the church and preached and taught? Of course not. The divisions in the church in Corinth didn't even occur until after many people had been added to the church and several different prominent ministers had worked in that church, men like Paul and Peter and Apollos. So they obviously didn't wait to go out to the lost and to preach and teach the truth, which is what built up that church, until after they knew they wouldn't have any divisions of any kind in the church. We are always going to have the potential for division in the church. There were divisions in the early church, and there will be divisions in the latter rain church. There was a difference, though, in the early church that we are striving to be more like in the latter rain church, and that is that the majority of the leadership held to the core truths of the gospel. But as I said here a few minutes ago, the core truths of the gospel, we do universally hold to among our churches. It's the secondary things where we have some division. Another issue I mentioned a few minutes ago, the fact that the early church was indisputably divided regarding serious issues related to the Gentiles keep Paul from continuing to go out to the Gentiles and continuing to build Gentile churches while those divisions were still present? No, it did not. In fact, Paul was going out to the Gentiles and building churches in those areas when the division was most heated, as you can see by reading the chapters immediately preceding Acts 15, where those divisions came to a head and began to be resolved. 
At that point, when the church finally began to resolve the conflict about the Gentiles, the ministry, starting with Peter and going on through Paul and Barnabas and others, had already been going out to the Gentiles for some time, preaching and teaching the most precious truths of the Word of God to them. And they did not stop doing that, even when there were some leaders in the church who did not yet have that vision and or who were deeply divided about what to do with the Gentiles when they did come into the church. If the leaders of the early church used the very same arguments that some are attempting to make now to keep people muzzled from preaching the message openly, then they would have had to hit the pause button, so to speak, on all of Paul's preaching and teaching in the chapters right before Acts 15 when they were so divided about the inclusion of the Gentiles and what that meant for the Gentiles to be included and what needed to be required of them. If we don't want to add anyone to the church until we're in complete agreement on every issue of truth and order among us, surely Paul shouldn't have been doing that very thing, adding Gentiles to the church when they were very divided on the role and requirements the Gentiles were in the church. And yet he still did, which all by itself absolutely annihilates these arguments about us not preaching these truths because we're still divided and we don't want to bring someone into a divided condition. They were very divided on the issue of the Gentiles all the way into the 15th chapter of Acts. And it looks like if you read afterwards, as I said earlier, they still had some divisions they were working on after that point. And yet they did not stop bringing Gentiles in. They did not stop preaching the truth to all those they could preach it to. So if we're waiting for the church to be restored to supposedly end all divisions that might arise among us or be present among us, and so that we'll supposedly have an absolutely universally unified message being preached and taught by every minister in our body of churches before we are willing to go out to preach the precious truth of full salvation of the lost, we are never going to go out and preach that message because we are never going to have the level of unity that some are looking for from every single person associated with this body before we preach that message. The ministry of the early church were not always universally unified in their beliefs and practices, as you can easily see in the book of Acts. That church had to work to be unified when differences arose. But even in the midst of conflict in the church, that didn't stop the work of evangelism, outreach, missions, and church planting and building from continuing. Finally, let me ask this question one more time. What is more dangerous and spiritually detrimental? To bring people into a body of churches where we're divided on some issues, but where we do hold the core truths of the full gospel in almost universal unity, or to leave them for the false religions of this world to proselytize, or for Babylonist evangelists in nominal Christianity to influence and potentially pull them into their churches. Unlike false religion and Babylonish Christendom, we are, or at least we claim to be, a body of people who, when we aren't yet fully settled and unified on some issues of truth and order, are still seeking that unity. One of our greatest contrasts with other religions and carnally crystallized forms of Christianity is that we are still, and I pray this is still true, willing to be changed. We are, or we should be, still seeking the unity of the faith that was once delivered to the saints. That very call to contend for that faith was being made in the early church period as well. Which means the bottom line is we have no excuse to argue that since we aren't agreed on everything, we should not be reaching out to people to bring them into the body. As I said earlier, it is almost insensible to make that argument if you're going to welcome visitors who walk through the door or if you're praying that your family members will come to church. Why would you want them to if your argument is we shouldn't be adding people to a body that's divided? 
because even in its present divided condition on some issues, this is still better than anything out there that may be more unified in some ways, but is unified on that which is false. All right, let me move on to this 15th chapter of Acts. I'm going to go all the way down to the 35th verse where it says, Paul and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. I'm including just this one statement in Acts 15 before we move forward to Acts 16, because though it is referring to teaching and preaching the word of God to the church, it's the exact same language that's used for teaching and preaching the truths of God's word to those outside the church throughout the book of Acts. That's proof that both preaching and teaching, which seem to designate both general gospel preaching and more in-depth doctrinal type teaching, especially when it's used in a parallel like this where it's preaching and teaching, was obviously being done both inside the church to the church members and outside the church to those who were initially unbelievers. That's very important because some claim we shouldn't preach any deeper doctrinal truths or anything other than the most surface level gospel message to those outside the church. But that is simply false, and it's not at all what the disciples were doing. Paul's preaching and teaching at Mars Hill is evidence of that. The Greek word didasko and its other forms, meaning to teach, a form of which is what's used here, is not normally used for what we think of as simple preaching of a message. It often conveys the idea of deeper, more intensive, complex instruction of more complicated ideas and so on, like we think of in terms of deeper doctrinal truth. It especially means that when it's paired with preaching as a separate but parallel activity. Didasco is used in many places to refer to the teaching of truths to unbelievers who were taught those truths before they ever darkened the doors of a church. I'll give you just a few examples of that, every one of which described this activity outside of the church in public environments. We've discussed a couple of these already, but it's worth examining the distinction between teaching and preaching that you see in these passages. Acts 4.2 says they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. These people in Acts 4.2 were the ones that Peter and John had been teaching in the open-air environment of the temple. These weren't believers in Christ, at least not initially. They were initially unbelievers who were receptive to the teaching about Jesus because of the miracle they had witnessed of the lame man being healed back in Acts 3. Acts 4.18 says they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. This is the response, the religious leaders, the teaching that was referred to in Acts 4.2. Notice there are two types of things here, speaking and teaching. And those are presented as two different types of communication. The first is likely referring to preaching, and the second to more in-depth teaching, just as it was used back in Acts 4.2. Again, proving that the apostles not only preached to the people who were not yet members of the church in open and public spaces, but they taught them in a more in-depth way as well. In Acts 5.19-25, when the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth, he said to them, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught, standing in the temple and teaching the people. He goes on to say down around the 28th verse, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. As we saw earlier, this wasn't an abbreviated, truncated version of the truth of the Word of God. This was all the words of this life. In addition, we once again see they weren't only preaching a simple, streamlined gospel message, they were teaching, inferring greater depth and detail that they were giving to the people in this highly public venue. 
Notice that the teaching the high priest rebuked him for doing was doctrinal in nature. The Greek word didache that's translated as doctrine in this passage comes from that word didesco, meaning teaching, and it refers to doctrinal teaching. I've heard some people claim that we shouldn't be sharing our doctrinal truths with those outside the church. Is that right? Perhaps someone should have told the apostles that, since they appear here and elsewhere, to have not gotten that message at all, or to have completely ignored it if they had gotten it. I imagine, I'm going to repeat this a number of times, but just consider the response of the apostles to the command given to them to stop preaching and teaching their doctrine publicly. A command, by the way, that's almost verbatim what some ministers have attempted to give to others who are presenting the very same truths of the Word of God in the very same public and open fashion. Acts 5.29 says that Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. If that's not clear enough, go back to the fourth chapter in the 19th and 20th verse, where it says, Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge you. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Their practical response to those commands not to publicly preach and teach is found in the very next example, the word didasco. It's in Acts 5.42 when it says, Daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Again, if they weren't intended to both preach and teach about Jesus publicly, they clearly didn't get the message. Not only did they preach and teach in every house, most of which is probably referring to gatherings of believers, But they continued to do so, not just once in a while, but daily in the temple. As I've said multiple times already, what was one of the most public and potentially inflammatory environments they could possibly preach in? There's numerous other examples of this Greek word or forms of it for teaching that are used for the teaching of those who are outside the church, but I'll just stop with that last because it makes the point sufficiently without any other statement being needed. All right, let's get into the 16th chapter of Acts, see if we can cover that as the last part of this session. The fourth and fifth verse of that chapter says, They went through the cities and delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained to the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Though this doesn't give us any specific insight into how the membership of the church increased, it's interesting that the establishment increase of the number of members may be in some way connected to the decrees that were delivered to the churches. Those decrees, which were agreed on back in Acts 15, were related to those who were genetically Gentile. They would not only have impacted any Gentiles who were already members of the church, they would have been potentially helpful in adding other Gentiles to the church, since some Gentiles may have held back from considering becoming a part of the church because of some of the requirements of the Mosaic Law that those decrees addressed. The Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 determined that genetic Gentiles didn't need to be physically circumcised to become a part of the New Covenant Church, and that the only core element of the rituals and customs of the Old Covenant Law that they needed to keep was the avoidance of idolatrous behaviors, especially those related to pagan sacrifices and physical perversions of different kinds, including not eating meat offered to idols, blood, or things strangled, or committing fornication, which, by the way, is a term that's sometimes used to refer to any kind of inappropriate sexual behavior. It could be that some Gentiles had been resistant to following the faith because they believed they would have to keep all the Judaic ritual laws in order to follow the new covenant faith. But once that was clarified and the word got out, it looks like more Gentiles began to come to the faith. 
As an aside, Torah-observant Judaizers claim that everyone under the New Covenant is expected to keep all of the Law of Moses, not only its moral laws, which are eternal and unchanging no matter what dispensation we might be in, but its ritual and cultural laws that were given to the Jews as well. There is no clear statement that dismantles that false teaching than what was made by the leaders of the Jerusalem church in the 24th verse of the 15th chapter of Acts when they said, For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. You can't get any clearer than that. Those who teach that Gentiles are required to be Torah observant, keeping all the laws given to the Jews in the Torah, including the ritual and non-moral laws and observances, are not only troubling the church with those kind of declarations, they are subverting souls. And they're requiring a standard of new covenant believers that the leaders of the early church adamantly denied they required when they stated we gave no such commandment. If the leaders of the early church gave no such commandment and made it clear they weren't going to give any such commandment, then we certainly shouldn't. That simple fact annihilates the Torah-observant argument that the Old Covenant law was intended to be kept by New Covenant Gentile believers. You realize the ritual act of circumcision was a very important part of that law, and the leaders of the Jerusalem church made it very clear it was unnecessary for Gentile believers. And by the way, that law was not only given to Moses as part of the Torah, the law that was given at Mount Sinai, it was given hundreds of years earlier to Abraham. And yet it still was something that the Gentiles did not have to keep under the new covenant. Let me add a couple points to this statement in Acts 15, 24, before we come back to Acts 16. The Greek word terasso, this translated troubles in that 24th verse, means to stir up or to agitate. And the Greek word anaskoiazo, that's translated as subverting, comes from a word referring to baggage or a vessel that when expanded into this grammatical form means to fill up a vessel or baggage. When we add to the biblically defined burden that God intends his people to bear, even when we think we're adding something God intended because it was something he intended for someone else in the biblical record, but it isn't something he intends for present day believers, we are weighing down their souls, adding extra spiritual baggage that's unnecessary and might even be detrimental to their spiritual growth. That might contain a lesson for the modern church as well, though. If we add additional baggage to the burden that God's given his people to bear as defined in the scripture by expanding on his requirements of them and then dogmatically demanding that they have to keep our man-made expansions, our traditions and customs that aren't biblically based, we'll be doing the very thing the leaders of the early church were forbidding, troubling the church, subverting souls, and adding burdens to the weight of the cross that we do have to bear, that God never asked to be added to that weight, let alone did he ask us to demand them as requirements of his people. Notice the way the leaders of the church referred to these kind of things back in the 10th verse of that 15th chapter. They said, now therefore, why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? And in the 28th verse, they said, It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. There is a difference between necessary things that are necessary because God declares them to be necessary and unnecessary things which are unnecessary because God did not declare them to be necessary, no matter what man might believe they're necessary. 
If the Hebrew leaders of the early church refused to require genetic Gentiles to keep one of the most critical commandments of the Abrahamic covenant law of Moses, the right of circumcision, which was, as I said, a key part of the Old Testament scripture, how much worse than those Judaizers demanding the Gentiles had to keep those requirements which were part of the old law will we in the modern church be if we dogmatically demand the members of the body of Christ have to keep commandments and customs and standards and other requirements that were never in the law of God, not just in in a past dispensation of God's operation, but never in his law, in order to be in a right relationship with him or in a right standing among his people. What right do we as human men have to give the people requirements that God has not given them to be in a relationship with him? He is the only definer of the divine requirements of being in a relationship with him, not us. And when they're not even based on any statement or any inferred intent of the scripture, how much more dangerous is that? If the leaders of the Jerusalem church wouldn't require circumcision of the Gentiles when circumcision was a requirement for the genetic seed of Abraham in the scripture, what possible justification do we have for creating brand new requirements that are nowhere found in the scripture and might even contradict what is found in the scripture and then tell people they're out of God's will or to be thought of as less than others in the body of Christ for not keeping our commandments that God never gave them to keep? Let's come back to this 16th chapter of Acts. Acts 16, 6 to 10 said, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. This is an example of a passage that some might try to misuse to attempt to argue that we should never go out to preach or teach anywhere, especially outside the church, until the Spirit undeniably directs us to do so. And then use that misinformed interpretation to argue against evangelism that's not first authorized by some supernatural witness. Those who might make that kind of argument not only seem to have missed the many examples of evangelism in the Bible where there's no record of a specific supernatural direction to talk to someone about the Lord, they've also missed the whole point of this passage and the record of history as well. This and most other passages doesn't say that the Spirit told them specifically to go to Phrygia and Galatia. They went where they felt they could reach people and only refused to do so when the Spirit made it clear not to. The fact that the Spirit forbade them to preach the word in Asia doesn't mean Asia wasn't intended to ever hear the gospel, because it obviously did go into Asia later. It seems that the Lord had places that he wanted the gospel preached first, before they went to Asia, at a later point. Same thing happened at Bithynia. Given the vision that Paul received after that forbidding of the Spirit, and the historical fact that the gospel later did reach that area, it seems that the Lord wanted him to first go to Macedonia, where there may have been a greater need and possibly even a more receptive audience at that time. Though God can give us a vision to instruct us who to go to, and he can direct us to go to one place versus another, that kind of supernatural direction is not assumed in the majority of the examples of evangelism in the book of Acts. Normally, the word was preached in every place that Paul and his companions had a potential audience to preach to, but in some cases, the Lord directed them to or away from a specific area or audience. It might be argued that the Spirit leads in any interaction of this kind, but we need to be very careful not to conclude that means we shouldn't preach the gospel to anyone unless we first get some kind of exceptional supernatural witness to do so. 
Continuing on in Acts 16, the 13th to the 15th verse, says, On the Sabbath day we went out of the city by the riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. This is one of the forms of outreach and evangelism. It's a little different from others we've seen up to this point in the book of Acts. Up to this point, we've seen the activities and testimonies of the church noised abroad in various ways. And we've seen Paul and his companions visiting Jewish synagogues to introduce them to the new covenant, as well as preaching and teaching in open and public venues to anyone who would listen. This evangelistic encounter is a little different. In this case, Paul sought out a place where he knew that there were believers in God who were gathering in a less formal environment than a synagogue and a less public environment than the marketplace or public square. That doesn't mean, though, that this is the only way to exercise outreach, because we've seen other forms. It was just one of the varied different ways this could be done effectively. Lydia and the women praying by the riverside were already in a relationship with God, but they hadn't yet met Jesus. One example of a modern parallel to this kind of witnessing would be going to a place where you know people who are already believers, but they may not have heard the truths that God's given us, what I've referred to earlier as the full gospel message. They're Christians who are meeting to pray and talk about the Lord somewhere, but they don't have all the truths that we feel like the Lord has given us. Lydia and her household appear to have been precious people of God who were operating in a limited measure of the truth. By the way, I don't think they realized that until after they engaged with Paul. They clearly knew God and the Old Covenant teachings, but they didn't know Christ and the truths of the New Covenant. And that was what Paul introduced them to. People in this kind of state of partial, limited knowledge and understanding sometimes can be the easiest to reach with the truth, but they can also sometimes be some of the hardest. If they haven't settled on the laurels of their present partial truth, and they're still hungry for more truth and clearer truth, they may be one of the most receptive of audiences. But if they're crystallizing their minds about some conception of the truth or some tradition they're holding that they might have been taught that's partially faulty or completely false, then that fixation can make it far harder to reach them with the correct interpretation or with more progressive revelation. Lydia was a woman of God who clearly hungered for more of him and for greater insight and truth, which is likely what drew her down to the riverside to pray with the other women there. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the description of her response to Paul's message was how everyone responds to the preaching of the truth they haven't heard yet? Unfortunately, that's not the case. In her case, she was a woman who worshipped God, and her desire for him and for his truth kept her heart accessible and open to the preaching and teaching of greater truth than she'd previously received. Her heart, and I believe her ears, the Lord opened, so that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul, resulting in her and her household, just like Cornelius in Acts 10, and the jailer and his family later in this same chapter, were converted and baptized. In order for a person to turn to the Lord or receive greater revelation and understanding from him or about him, their heart has to open to the Lord, or it has to be opened by the Lord. It could be telling that Lydia and her household are the only ones mentioned as having their hearts opened, attending unto the things which are spoken of Paul, and the only ones recorded here as being baptized. The passage starts by telling us that there were women, plural, who gathered at the riverside to pray. But the only one who appears to have responded to Paul's message among that group was Lydia, and eventually her household. It doesn't say that Paul only spoke to Lydia because all the other women were supposedly unworthy of hearing the message. 
because as I keep referring to this ungodly and unbiblical idea that they automatically were dog-like or swine-like if they were outside the church, this says that a certain woman, Lydia, out of the overall group of women heard us whose heart the Lord opened. The message was given to all of them, but all of them didn't hear and have their hearts open to it. By the way, that fact goes completely cross-grained to the claim that we're only to preach to those who are open to the message or sitting in our church. Otherwise, supposedly, forgive me for saying it again, we would be preaching to spiritual dogs or swine. The message is given to all, but all won't hear it or accept it. And how they respond to the message when it's given to them is what may categorize them as being dog-like or swine-like in spirit. But unless the Lord clearly tells us ahead of time that they are in those categories, we cannot possibly know if they are until after we've offered them the message, meaning that we have to preach the word to all. Just like you see in Matthew 13, the seed was sown on all different types of soil. And the response of some to hearing it preached will reveal whether they are dogs or swine in spirit or whether the soil you're spreading that on is wayside or stony ground or thorny ground or whether it's good ground. How tragic that no one else among the women praying at the riverside appeared to have responded positively to Paul's message. This demonstrates, as many other passages do as well, that the message was given in what we might call a mixed audience. The truth was preached to all who were present, but only some, and in this case only one apparently, appears to have positively responded to that preaching. As we've seen in other examples, Paul didn't wait for God to send Lydia to him or to put it on her heart to find a gathering of believers, a church in other words, drawing her there to hear the message. Paul went to where she and the other women were at. As I said, he didn't wait for her to be drawn by God to come to him or drawn by God to walk in a church house. This and many other similar examples is contrary, as I keep saying, to the misapplication of Acts 2.47 that argues that if God wants someone to join the church, we don't need to go out to witness to them, preach the truth publicly, which you obviously see the church was doing both those things, because if he wants them, he'll bring them to the body of Christ without any effort or external outreach on our part. He can do it. I've watched him do it. But that's not at all what Acts 2.47 is getting at. It's referring to God adding people to the membership of the church after they've heard the message, been invited, or have in some other way been drawn to come to the church that isn't always just him doing all the drawing. Paul didn't sit statically and maybe even stagnantly behind the supposedly spiritually locked doors of the church waiting for people to show up to hear the message if God wanted them to hear it. He went out and he did so in many different venues and presented the truth openly and publicly. As I was thinking about this lately, the words of the first two verses of the 20th song hit me like a hammer blow. It says, The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Though one meaning, and possibly the primary meaning, of this statement is that God can and does send spiritual aid and empowerment out of his sanctuary in heaven, that's not the only way that help is sent out of Zion and from the sanctuary. Usually, Zion is referring to God's place of spiritual government and activity in the earth, or by extension, his people who are part of that order and operation. There is certainly help and strength in Zion and in the sanctuary that's the earthly expression of the heavenly sanctuary. But this is referring to aid and assistance that comes from the sanctuary and out of Zion. There is a world in deep distress and dire need of the aid and assistance of the church, including the unconstrained preaching of the undiluted word of God. 
And when we go out from the sanctuary to share its message of holiness and hope with them, we become the help and the strengthening agents of Zion in doing so. Immediately after these events, a woman possessed by an evil spirit arrived on the scene and started following Paul's company. When Paul eventually cast out the evil spirit, the loss of its insight and the income that came from it caused the woman's masters to rile up the city against Paul and Silas, resulting in them being attacked and imprisoned, which led to one of the most unique examples of what we might call evangelism in the book of Acts. In the 22nd to the 34th verse, it says the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. The persecution of the church was often a powerful driver of outreach and evangelism. As we saw earlier, following the murder of Stephen and the increased persecution that came in its wings, the church was scattered. But it wasn't to the detriment of the church, it was to its benefit. It was scattered like seed over the soil, and that scattering didn't divide and conquer or diminish the strength of the church. It increased its evangelistic efficacy and range. Many of the examples of evangelistic efforts in the book of Acts are centered around the preaching and teaching of the truth to those outside the church. But some, as is the case here, are accomplished by the effects of the example of believers under persecution, and at times, like here, when God supernaturally witnesses to his ministry and his message. It wasn't the direct preaching and teaching of the Word of God, at least not initially, that led to the conversion of the jailer, his household, and possibly even some of the prisoners. It was the spirit and example of Paul and Silas in the midst of pain and under persecution, and God's supernatural response to their prayers and praise. Their prayer and praise was heard by the prisoners, and their complete confidence in God and His will for them that gave them the courage to stand still and not to flee after they'd been freed from the prison was a shockingly powerful testament to their faith. And though some seem to miss this point, it was a shockingly powerful testament to their love for the lost. Paul and Silas knew the danger the jailer would be in if they fled. Generally, in the Roman Empire, those who lost prisoners they were responsible for were executed. But it wasn't just the natural well-being of the jailer and his family that caused them to literally and spiritually fear not. It was their spiritual well-being that I think was the greatest motivator of Paul and Silas waiting, staying potentially endangering themselves by doing so because they had a desire to see the jailer and his family delivered. And that's pretty astonishing because that wasn't just some random person that they had that feeling toward. It was someone who was the one responsible for locking them in the prison. 
We don't know if any of the prisoners were turned to the Lord by what they experienced, but against all natural inclination for self-preservation, they apparently followed the example and possibly direction of Paul and Silas and didn't flee the scene. I'd like to hope for their soul's sake that if they followed them in remaining and not fleeing away, at least some of them may have followed in the footsteps of the jailer and his family and given their lives to Jesus. So, people were added to the church in a wide range of different ways in the book of Acts that we've seen thus far. Some by hearing the preaching and teaching of the gospel in open and public places. Some by hearing it in their non-Christian churches, in other words, the Jewish synagogues. Some by hearing it in a smaller group of those who were already in a relationship with God who didn't know Christ. Some by the witness of the Spirit and the disposition of the believers under intense persecutions. And some in unique events, sometimes with supernatural witnesses, as was the case with the jailer and his family. The point, as Sister Rhonda Abshire's song so poetically expresses, we cannot and must not put God in a box or fence him in, or otherwise assume that he can only do things in some limited range or only in the ways we've experienced ourselves personally. God is too big for any box designed with man-made dimensions and constructed out of man-made materials. He's not always going to do things the way we have experienced in the past, and we certainly shouldn't try to limit the parameters of his power to our human dimensions. As Sister Abshire's song goes on to say, he will do the impossible time and time again. 